You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Uh, I'm going to turn my ESPN app off real quick. If you did not hear the sports center noise coming from my backside, uh, that'd be what that was. All right. Uh, I think everybody here knows me, so I'm not going to do the introductions. If you're online, you should get to know me, but my name's Josh. Um, hey, uh, I'm not going to lie to y'all. It's been two weeks since I've been here and been able uh, to preach here with our family. And I got to admit, I'm like mad excited. I'm like crazy excited. That minor woohoo is enough to get me lit. That's how excited I am. That's right. Uh, and so let's hope I don't take all day, but at the same time, I want to jump in to ensure that I don't take all day, but I do got to let you know I'm excited. And it's, it's more than just being excited because I get to preach. It's about the fact that we are continuing our time in worship today uh, by opening God's word, right? We don't believe really almost any Christian community, any Orthodox Christian community, looking at the Bible and being like, yo, we want to follow this, believes that worship is limited to just us singing, but that worship takes place in the entirety of our lives, Right. And one of the primary ways we worship is through coming to God's word and asking him to speak to us in these moments. And so right now I'm excited because we're continuing our time in worship. This is going to be worship. What we're about to do by opening God's word, humbling our hearts and asking him to speak to us right now. That's what we're doing. We're going to hear from God. Not Josh, but God as we speak and look at his word. And so I hope you're as excited today to do that as I am. I'm also excited because today we're going to continue. This is the second to last week now. uh, Continue our sermon series called Therefore Go, uh, where we're taking a look at the rhythm of evangelism. And and that sounds weird, uh, the rhythm of evangelism. What I mean is, is the practice, the routine Uh, the the habit of sharing our faith. A couple of months ago, most of y'all already know this, uh, we started a a string of sermon series focused on reestablishing spiritual rhythms. We're not out of the COVID pandemic woods yet, uh, but as we can all tell, we're starting to kind of get more normal rhythms of life going. Maybe you're seeing your family more. Maybe you're going into work for the first time, meeting coworkers for the first time. Uh, I'm going to scoot up a little bit here because I'm like uh, eight feet away from the nearest person, and I don't like that. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you're getting back in the room of school. You're going to school, back to school. You're sending your kids to school, that type of thing. And as we re-enter into those rhythms, we also have to be aware of the spiritual rhythms God's calling us to come back into. Right? To be aware of those rhythms, rhythms that are meant to bless us and to bless those around us in various ways. And one of the rhythms, again, that we're focusing on is this rhythm, this habit of sharing our faith, of evangelizing. And here's the thing. It's easy to really see how that idea, sharing our faith, blesses other people. At least I hope it's easy to see that. If, it, if it's not easy to see that, we need to have another conversation. But hopefully it, it's easy to see that, right? Like there's this story of redemption taking place where Jesus has come and through his life, death and resurrection has started the work of redeeming all things, making all things new, making all things right in this broken world where we can feel like something needs to be right here. Like the world is messed up and we we long for something to make it better. And now we have that in Jesus. And now we're able to invite people to come and experience his forgiveness and his love and be made whole to join in on that story of redemption and to join that work of seeing redemption come with us. What a blessing. That's amazing. 
When we say a spiritual rhythm that blesses other people, this should be like the first one that comes to mind. I mean, even non-Christians can see this, right? Non-Christians understand this. Famous magician and slightly less famous atheist, Pendulette once wrote, he's the guy, Penn and Teller, right? Tall guy with a ponytail and short guy that's kind of like silent. One time uh, in an interview, he said this, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? This is an atheist. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Even he gets it. My man doesn't even believe in God. And he's like, dude, that clearly, if I believe that, like that is this duh. Like, go and tell somebody that. Right? It's, it's a little easier to see how something like sharing our faith blesses other people. Again, even non-Christians can see that. But today, I actually don't want to talk about that. Made a big deal about it. I'm going to kind of give you a really strong right turn. Um, Today, I actually want to zero in on our side of that blessing. Right? If spiritual rhythms are meant to bless others, hear me, and bless us, I want to focus on how the rhythm of evangelism, how sharing our faith actually blesses us. I want to focus on what God is doing in our hearts when we serve him by sharing who he is, sharing what he's done really tease out those emotions and those feelings that are going on in our heart when the idea of asking a coworker or a neighbor or a friend or even a stranger, if you can pray for them, what's going on in your heart in that moment? Those same emotions and feelings that, that are going on when you're thinking about inviting them to church or inviting them to community group or something like that, right? You kind of get those little bubbles, you know, the little butterflies. You start getting all them feelings. Those feelings that at their best motivate us to be obedient to God and at their worst lead us to being disobedient to God and oftentimes leave us with guilt and shame and embarrassment. That's what, that's what I want to zone in on today. Because you see, friend, understanding those emotions helps us understand how we're truly engaging with the good news of Jesus. When we better understand how our heart responds to the moments of sharing who he is, it helps us understand how we're really engaging with the good news of Jesus. It helps us understand better how our heart, not just our mind, but our heart, not just our mind knowing the good news, but our heart believing the good news, right? How our heart views God and his power and his authority and his love, because you can know something all day. You can, I can give you a quiz today about God's power and his majesty. And you might even be able to give me a text and be like, yo, go to Isaiah 6 and there's this throne room and it's crazy, right? And like, you may be able to tell me all the right things. But if our heart doesn't believe those things, if our heart doesn't, isn't sold out on those things, nothing changes. And hear me, there's no good reason to act on those ideas unless our heart is captured by the truth of who God is, the realities of what he's done. His character and his goodness. That's what we want to focus on today. And so today, I want to help us understand our own hearts by taking a look into the heart of the Apostle Paul and see how his healthy emotional response, because he does have a very healthy emotional response, to the challenges of following Jesus are anchored in more than just his knowledge of who God is, but his belief his faith in who God is. They're anchored in much more than him being able to rattle off facts, but in a deep belief in who God is and his character. The main idea I want you to walk away with today is this, right? Uh, uh, where's he at? Sean V saying this is the, the sermon in a tweet. And while 
I don't know much about Twitter. Uh, I'll use the, the language to help you get the idea. The main idea I want you to walk away with is this, that God uses spiritual rhythms in our lives to reveal his character and bring life to our hearts. This whole time we've been talking about discipleship and community and now evangelism. And the thing is, what I want us to grasp today is that God uses spiritual rhythms in our lives to reveal his character and bring life to our hearts. And I want us to grasp this idea today by taking a look at 2 Corinthians eleven fifteen, 15 uh, and looking at two of Paul's greatest motivations. This text shows us two of Paul's greatest motivations. The first one is fear. Fear. Paul is motivated by fear. And the second is that Paul is motivated by love. Two of Paul's greatest motivations, the first fear, the second love. Let's go ahead and get started today. We're going to read verses 11 and 12 again, and then we'll jump into talking about fear. Uh, if you want to go ahead and read it on the back of the, in the screen or whatever with me, uh, let's go ahead and jump in. Verse 11 says, therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may have a reply to those who take pride in outward appearance rather than in the heart. All right, so as we get started here talking about, again, fear, uh, talking about Paul's, Paul's first motivation in the text, fear, you might be asking a very valid question, which I understand. How in the world is fear a good motivation in church, right? Like you're kind of thinking like, man, bro, like this is harkening back to the old school days where it was like hell and brimstone. And it was like, I need to go and do the right thing so I don't go to hell. Like that's not what we're talking about. And to understand why motivation, why fear is a good motivation, you have to understand the context of 2 Corinthians. Once you understand that, this whole idea makes much more sense. You see, when we jump into 2 Corinthians 5, we're jumping into the back end of a long saga between Paul and the Corinthian church a church that he helped plant, by the way. And for context, nearly all scholars, biblical scholars, believe that there were at least four letters written between Paul and the Corinthian church. Four. Some believe that the last four chapters of 2 Corinthians is actually a fifth letter. Now, the books we have as 1 Corinthians, that was the second letter. And the book, no, the book we have as 1 Corinthians is the second letter. And the book we have as 2 Corinthians, (laughs) I'm so lost. Even you, I'm confused on what's going on right now, right? What you got to know is that we have the second and the fourth letter. That's what I'm trying to get to you, all right? We have the second and the fourth letter. Uh, And the two, possibly three other letters are not believed to have survived time. And you got to remember, these letters weren't passed back and forth like emails. This wasn't an afternoon worth of communication, right? These letters took months and years to get to and from their destinations. And so we're reading 2 Corinthians We're reading the back end of a years-long saga between Paul and this church. Years. This has been going on for years. Years of hurt and pain and anger and forgiveness and then more pain. Right? That's what we're reading. And as much as I'd love to get into the novella slash soap opera worthy details and juiciness of what's happened between them, uh, we don't have time and I, I, I might be virgin on gossip the way my heart feels about that. But... At its core, the issue could be loosely summarized like this, that it was a character assassination against Paul, that it was a character assassination against Paul. Individuals in this Corinthian church had had used moments where his mission trips and time away from the Corinthian church were used 
uh, to call him wishy-washy and uncommitted. They used moments of him recovering from being beaten and nearly killed on several occasions to call him weak and incapable. They used moments where his fight for Christian unity, despite other people's partisan views of who they pledged allegiance to, were used to belittle him and to make him sound insecure and emotionally fragile. In other words, friends, this saga was rooted in moments where Paul's faithfulness to Jesus were used to make him feel small and less than. And I got one question. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt that? Right? This should be an experience that almost all of us universally in here can look at and respond and be like, oh, man, I kind of know that feeling. Right? Right? That moment when, when you let someone know, now, I can't really go ahead with that joke, man. That joke's getting a little, little out of hand for me. And someone looks at you and says, oh, so you all holy now? And then maybe throw something at you from your past to, let you, to remind you, you didn't always used to be, not be down with these jokes. Right, that moment when you stop after a couple of drinks, but your friends keep going. And after a little bit of time, they're looking at you kind of with regret, wishing maybe you just hadn't come that day. So you're kind of like the party pooper of the group now. Those moments when, when you know that you need to talk to someone about Jesus, right? You, you feel it. The Holy Spirit is telling you, talk to that person. But the moment you open your mouth and start talking about it, they look at you and they're like, man, you're always pushing that stuff on people, man. You got to chill with that. I don't need that right now. You're like, that's exactly what you need. But they're like, you know, no, man, get up, back off with that. You see, those moments of hurt, sadness, rejection are something the people in the scriptures, the people in the Bible, especially the New Testament, it's something they're extremely familiar with, friends. You're not the first to deal with those feelings. You're not the first to be worried about those feelings. You're not the first one to put your heart on the line in these situations and feel the sting when it seems to go south. You're not the first one. And I'm not saying that to try and diminish your feelings or to try to diminish your experiences, but rather I'm telling you that so that you can see there's hope in the midst of those situations. You're not the first one and you won't be the last one, but there's hope in it. And a part of that hope we find is in verses 11 and 12, and it's actually in Paul's fear. It's in Paul's fear. When I talk about fear, what I don't mean is that sense of impending doom here. That's not what I'm talking about. Rather, I'm talking about understanding the power and might and authority of God, right? Understanding who God is and his majesty and his power and his authority and responding to that in line. Has any, have any of y'all ever seen The Crown? It's a show on Netflix. It's about nobody. Nobody has nerded out. Thank you. All right. Two people in the back are maybe as nerdy as I am. All right. It's a show about Queen Elizabeth, the Queen of England. All right. So, all right. All right. All right. Man, Jermaine got me a little bit. Here's the thing. Throughout the show, it covers large parts of her life. And, and it's so many different points. When they're bringing someone in to meet her, they start like they're walking through the hallways of this magical palace and castle. And they're like, when you get in there, you need to curtsy here, then curtsy there, then say this, then say that, then curtsy over there. Then they're, they're giving them all these instructions on what to do when they meet the queen uh, because no one goes in to meet the queen flippantly. No one's walking in like, ah, it's no big deal. They're taught to recognize the majesty and the influence and really the history behind the Queen of England, behind the crown. And hear me, that's for a monarch in the Queen of England that for all intents and purposes doesn't even have really any political influence anymore. Right? That, that, but there's still this reverence shown. 
Paul is helping us understand that there's a reverence, there's an honor, there's an awe that God is worthy of because of his majesty and power and authority. And because Paul understands this power and authority, hear me, look at me, because Paul understands this power and authority, the opinion of these people in Corinth, as much as he loves them, and as much as he cares for them, is not the final authority on word and word on which he hangs his identity. Their opinion of him is not the final word on which he hangs his dignity, his self-value, his self-worth. Nor is it the final word or opinion that tells him whether his actions were good or whether they're foolish. He's able to say the fear of God, the understanding of who he is and his authority. That's my final say. That's my final authority. Look at verse 11. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others. In other words, because we understand God's authority and God's power. That's why we do what we do. That's why I go across the world trying to share this faith. That's why I run the risk of being thrown into the streets and beaten uh, like a fool. That's why I do it. Because I understand that there's a higher authority and a more important voice that stands over me. Then he continues on. What we are is plain to God. And I hope it's also plain to your consciences. In other words, right, my, my faithfulness is evident to him. And I hope it's evident to you. Because while you may see a fool... He sees a faithful servant. And that's what I'm banking on more than I'm banking on your perception of me as a fool. You may see me as a fool. You may see me as weird. You may see me as awkward. But in the midst of those moments, he still sees me as faithful. He still sees me as sacrificial. He's pleased in me. And that's what I rest on. I love the way theologian and professor N.T. Wright says this in a devotional he has on this passage, he says this too, that being the fear of the Lord, should help explain why he does, he being Paul, he does what he does. He isn't concerned about what human standards people might impose from the various cultures they live in, since the only standard that matters is the one that Jesus himself will set. That was my son. All right. Imagine being this convinced of something. I want you to stop for a second. And and really think about what he's saying. Imagine being this convinced of something. This anchored in the truth of God. That even in the midst of struggle and pain and rejection, these truths begin to comfort our hearts. Imagine being that anchored in it. That even in the midst of suffering, comfort becomes overwhelming. That's what Paul's showing us here. But here's the thing, friends, most of us, most of us don't have this relationship with fear. For most of us, this is not the relationship we have with fear. This healthy fear that sees God correctly and and through that sees everything else correctly as well. For most of us, this is not the relationship we have with fear. Rather, we have an unhealthy relationship with fear. What do I mean? I, I mean that for many of us, The fear many of us most often experience, the fear of others, of circumstances, but maybe most damaging, the fear we have even of God is the type of fear that inflicts pain on us and leaves us empty rather than comforts us in the midst of suffering. It's the type of fear that causes suffering, not the type of fear that comforts suffering. This is the type of fear that Jesus actually commands us to resist and to avoid. 
What does this type of unhealthy fear look like? I, I really connected to the way Aubrey Malfers, he's a theologian professor at Dallas Seminary, described fear. And, and, and then, therefore, from here to understand unhealthy fear. He said, fear is the emotion that comes from the anticipation of something harmful happening in the future to you or another you care about. And hear me, while this fear has its place and can sometimes be healthy, right? Like, like I fear the consequences of sin sometimes, so I don't do sin, right? Like, this, this can be protective, right? When it's healthy, unhealthy fear, an unhealthy anticipation of something wrong happening, an unhealthy elevation of a person or circumstance that, that begins to think only doom can come from this thing because it has that type of power, oftentimes cripples us if we're not careful. It cripples us. Think, think about it like this. If I fear in an unhealthy way someone's opinion of me, I'll never be able to approach that person with any other opinion, any other opinion than the one that makes them happy. I'll never be able to come to them with anything besides something that makes them happy. And that means I'll never be able to protect them. I'll never be able to care for them. I'll never be able to love them, to warn them. I'll only be able to appease them. It will cripple me. Out of every good thing God has called me to be to that person. Irish poet and essayist Oscar Wilde once wrote, a true friend stabs you in the front, not in the back. I had a seminary professor recently say, riffing off of that quote, an enemy stabs you in the, frack, but a, in the back, but a friend stabs you in the chest. But not when unhealthy fear reigns in our relationships. Because I'm not capable of coming to you to stab you with anything. To bring any truth to you. And that's just in this context, right? And, and here's the thing, friend. Uh, this doesn't just stop here, right? We think about unhealthy fear of circumstances, right? If I fear circumstances in an unhealthy way, it can paralyze me. This happens with people and doctors all the time. It's like, yo, I'm not feeling good. You should go to the doctor. Nah. Why? Because what if they find something? It's like, well, that's their job. That you're going to the doctor to make sure they find something so you can get healing in case something's wrong. But in their mind, in our mind, when we fear circumstances in an unhealthy way, only something negative can come from it. A trip to the doctor can't possibly result in healing. It can only result in death and pain and suffering because unhealthy fears are reigning over me when it comes to that circumstance. You see what I'm saying? And here's the thing, so much of this is based on an unhealthy fear that we have toward God. When our fear toward God is not healthy, but is unhealthy, that's when we begin to look at people and circumstances in these twisted and deformed ways, right? The belief that God is only bringing bad things to us. When that begins to sneak in, whether subtle or explicit, that's when everything else starts to become mutated and unhealthy, and this teases itself, out, teases itself out in a couple of different ways, right? Maybe you see God as angry and vengeful toward your past, right? Never forgiving you. And he's just waiting to hold you accountable for something you've done. And so you wait in fear of the next things that he's bringing because whatever he brings can't possibly be good because he wouldn't give you good things while he's that angry at you. That's how some of us view God. Or maybe even worse, or just as bad, you see him as unfair, right? And so he doesn't reward you for your good, right? He only punishes for bad. 
And even worse, there are times that you have actually done good, but yet he still sends bad just to humble and remind you who he is. And so he humbles us and bows us forcefully before him because he needs to remind us that we're small and he's big. Friend, I want to lovingly tell you these views, they spit in the face of the gospel of Jesus. They spit in the face of the gospel where the wrath of God was poured out on the innocent lamb of God so that guilty sons and guilty daughters could be, free, could be forgiven and receive good gifts whether we deserve them or whether we don't. Those views spit in the face of that good news. Listen to me and look at me. You serve a loving father who desires to give you good things, not because you've earned them, but because his son has. Yet his son received the punishment of our sins so that we could receive the gifts of his life. What good news? That's the good news we walk in. And that's the good news that God desires to anchor into your heart so that when the lies of the enemy come in to paint a picture of God that is untrue and, and, and completely false, we respond with the truth of who he is, that he would kill and, and, and bring to death his own son so that we who did not know him and were far off could be brought near and made sons or daughters. This is the truth we go to war with in the midst of the lies that seek to harm us. Friends, whether now or in eternity to come, God has promised good things. God has promised us good things. Our heart isn't meant to see him just as powerful and majestic. It isn't meant to just see his authority. Yes, we're meant to see those things. We're meant to believe those things. And we're meant to respond in awe and in reverence. But that's not where it should stop. We're meant to be humbled under the weight that the almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God has seen me and seen you and in our failures and in our successes and has loved us to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the truth that's meant to weigh us down and anchor us to the heart of the Father. When we understand his power and it can strike fear, but then we understand his goodness and it invokes love. Right? That's the weight that anchors us down. You are loved today, friend. You're loved by your heavenly father and are called to know and to be known by that loving and heavenly father. Paul wasn't just motivated to follow Jesus and to live for Jesus by the fear of the Lord, but by the love of Jesus. Look at verses 14 and 15 where he says, for the love of Christ compels me since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them and was raised friends Paul knew his life was God's because his powerful majestic God had loved him enough to die so that he could live Paul wrestled with those realities. And now every choice, whether it was being beaten in the street or being ridiculed by his church family, didn't persuade him away from that truth, but rather reinforced that truth. And after years of pain and hurt and sadness, Paul came away from those moments believing God's authority was greater and Christ's love was sufficient because it was in both the depths of Paul's failures and in the heights of Paul's successes that God was affirming he was sufficient for Paul in the fullness of his life. It was in Paul's faithfulness that God's authority 
came to life, right? It was in Paul's suffering that God's love became real and necessary and what he began to cling to. In every step, God used Paul's faithfulness, a.k.a. his faithfulness to these spiritual rhythms to stir affection and to create more faithfulness where faithfulness already was. Friends, in, in, in our depths and in our suffering, God reminds us, I will never leave you, even when everything around you seems like it's falling apart. And it's in our success that he reminds us that he's good and desires to give us good gifts, whether we deserve them, and sometimes even when we don't. And it seems like favors come on us even when we've failed to, to really do the things necessary for it. When we do something like share our faith, God reminds us in the rejection that no one's voice about our lives is stronger than his, right? And he reminds us in success that only he changes lives and only he makes us new. And so the only thing we can cling to is not our success in that thing, but rather his power to make us whole. Either way, you're reminded of God's word over you and his power and his love. These are the motivations that stir us, that spur us toward these spiritual rhythms. But hear me, these are also the blessings that come from these spiritual rhythms. Right? Yeah, we're motivated by the fear of God and we're motivated by by the love of Christ. But, But these are also the returning interest, the returning dividends that God pays when we do this, that begin to anchor our heart closer and closer to the heart of the Father. Let me tell you, friend, if you never put yourself in a position to understand God's heart, but only read it, right, the, the words of this page may never jump out at you and become real for you. you. You may have heard it said, but I know I have, that like, like the, this book isn't an instruction manual. Right? The, the, the calls for how we're to live our lives, the spiritual rhythms that we're called to, right, they're, they're not meant to to be something we read and memorize, but something we do. Not for the sake of uniformity, but friend, for the sake of a reminder that makes real the power, the love, the majesty, the forgiveness, the life change that comes through the good news and the work of Jesus. That's what that's for. Those commands aren't meant, aren't meant for you to just be like, oh yeah, that's cool. That's like a good ideal. But to do them so you could be reminded, so that we could be reminded of the good news. That's what they're for. But it's going to require replacing the lies we believed about God with the truth of his power and his love. That's the only way these rhythms, whether it's prayer, evangelism, community, doesn't matter, right? That's the only way these bear fruit for us the way they were meant to. My question today is, do you believe this stuff? Do you believe God's power and authority that it has the final say over your life and that no one else can overturn it? Do you believe His love for you is unshakable, even, not even, I should say, by your own failures and your own mistakes. Do you believe that? Not know it. I'm not giving you a paper quiz. I'm asking you if you believe it. It, um, to kind of close up, it it makes me, it makes me think of a story I read in preparation uh, this week. And it was a story of a young woman who had recently won a competition. I don't know what the competition was for, so don't ask me about that. But uh, what, it, what it involved was that it, winning the competition, uh, the reward was, was that she received an all-inclusive three-week trip around the world. And, and all the travel, all the, all the wanderlusters are like, yeah, all right? 
And I don't know if it was going around the whole of the world. I know it was going around at least a piece of it. And uh, yet, apparently the reward was in a certain time. It wasn't like a, you get to go whenever you want. I'm assuming there's a lot of arrangements that have to take place for this type of thing. And so because uh, of a circumstance, she gave up that trip to stay with a friend who was ill and was going into the hospital for a scary and a crucial surgery. And upon getting word that this girl was giving up this reward, the local news stations hopped on. Can you turn down a little bit, Sarah? If I need to get louder, I'll just pull it up to my face. Um, the local news stations were like, hey, uh, we got to go and interview this girl. So they go and they, they, they hop on her in front of the hospital. And they're like, hey, why'd you give up? And she didn't really know what to say, right? She's just like, ah, I don't know. And she's a friend of mine. And, and, and when she started realizing that that answer wasn't going to be sufficient because the, the reporters kept pressing for a deeper answer, she finally looked up and replied in a way that took everybody by surprise. She said, all right, you really want to know? You think I'm crazy. But what none of you know and what I wasn't going to tell you is what she did for me years ago. I was on drugs and I couldn't stop. It got worse and worse. My family threw me out. She was the only person who looked after me. She sat up all night again and again and talked me through it. She mopped me down when I threw up. She changed my clothes. She took me to the hospital. She talked to the doctors. She made sure I was coming through it. She helped me with the court case. She even helped me get a job. She, she loved me. So did I have any choice? Now that she's sick herself, it's the least thing I can do to stay with her. It's far less than she did for me. Friend, only when we understand and hear me believe God's love and goodness and character. Only when the truth of, of the beautiful son of God and sinless lamb hanging bloodied and bruised on the cross becomes the truth of the depth of God's love for us. Are we stirred and transformed into action? Where no longer are these ideas of prayer or sharing our faith or being in community, right? Where they're no longer like, oh, that's cool. But it's like, no, that's necessary. Why? Because of the depth of this love that sent the Son of God to hang on the cross compels me to do them. As I close, I just want to uh, offer you a couple of suggestions to help you displace those lies that may be preventing you from believing those things and therefore probably preventing you from actually doing the spiritual rhythms that we've been talking about, whether evangelism, a community, or discipleship, and, and all the other stuff. When these beliefs are absent, it probably means all this stuff is starting to fall by the wayside. And so as you process, what are the lies that are preventing me from truly believing this stuff? And hear me, listen to me. Everybody in here is struggling with that. No one in here has perfectly believed it. Because if there was someone in here that perfectly believed it, their heart would no longer be tempted by sin whatsoever. And so we're all struggling with these things. And I want to offer some, some, some suggestions as we close to help us fight against those lies. The first is this, do the scary work of understanding why you're struggling to believe something. Do the scary work of understanding why you're struggling to believe these things about God. Why is it scary work? Because for some of us, it means unearthing trauma in our past 
and pain that we've experienced that have planted seeds so deep that it is hard for us to see the goodness of God because all we see is the trauma we've experienced. Maybe some of us have family influences where we've only seen a certain type of emotional expression when it comes to gifts or when it comes to anything else. And so we don't really know how to process God loving us because we, we didn't see that growing up. Right? You don't know what it is, but, but man, he does. And as you search through it and dive into it, it may be scary, but he's with you. He'll guide you. His love can prevail over that. The second is this. Once we've started to do that work, turn to Jesus in faith and also repentance. Turn to Jesus in faith and also repentance. No matter the reason we're struggling to believe things about God, the reality is we're still believing a lie about him now. And God welcomes us to come to him in repentance, not because he wants to shame us, not because he wants to shame you, but because he wants to free us. Because he wants to free you and me. So come to him in faith, but come to him in repentance. And he welcomes us in grace to free us from the lies that turn us away from him and make us struggle to believe in his goodness. It's my prayer that we would grow more and more comfortable and really like, like feel a sense of freedom when it comes to the realities of God's goodness and power and love and that, that they, these realities, would motivate us to live out these spiritual rhythms, right? That, that it would motivate us when we have like prayer and care that's coming up in like next month or something like that, that, that these realities of God's goodness for other people, but also for ourselves would be like, yo, I'm going to get up and go knock on this door and pray for this person. Because if they shut the door in my face, I know that God in his goodness will still work it out to lead me to cling to him and to be reminded of his goodness. Today, no matter what, the spiritual rhythms I put in place because I believe who he is are going to draw me closer to the heart of my God. Right, that's my prayer for us. Let's go ahead and, uh, and pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Um, thank you for the fact that you are a God who understands what we're going through. You understand those moments of fear. You understand moments of unhealthy understandings of you because you understand the brokenness of the world. Not once did you ever look at us and shame us for believing the things we believed. Not once have you ever looked at us and said, God, what an idiot to believe that I'm not good. Not once did you see the experiences of our life and say, man, you should be strong enough to figure that out, to overcome it and to come to me. But instead, you took on flesh and entered into the very brokenness that we know. So that instead of calling us to yourself, you could come to us, assuring us of your goodness, assuring us of your love, even to the extent that you would die on a cross so that we could be made whole. Father, let those truths anchor us deep down into your heart and let us see you as our loving heavenly father that we now through the good news and work of Jesus are walking with day in and day out advancing your mission to invite more people to know that truth and to be made whole by those realities. We love you, we thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith. 